Welcome to the AI Policy Podcast, a podcast by the Wadwani Center for AI and Advanced Technologies at CSIS. I'm Gregory C. Allen. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. Join us as we dive into the world of AI policy, where we'll discuss the implications of this transformative technology for national security, geopolitics, and global governance. Well, we're back on the AI Policy Podcast, of course, with my colleague Gregory C. Allen. This is Andrew Schwartz. Glad to be back with you. Today, we're going to talk about the EU AI Act, which recently was signed. We're going to talk about U.S. attempts to choke off China's access to cloud computing. Greg, we're also going to talk about China's progress on the next generation of chips. And we're also if we get time at the end. We're going to talk about AI safety and the U.S. and China actually trying to collaborate on AI safety. Any one of these topics could be its own podcast. Sure. And that's kind of the current state of AI policy is it's just huge event after huge event after huge event. Well, it's amazing how much we have to talk about every week. So, you know, our listeners are in for a treat. So let's let's just kick it off today. On January 26th, the EU member state representatives voted to confirm the final text of the EU AI Act. What does all this mean? What is the EU AI Act and what does it mean for the United States and for the world? This is the biggest AI regulation in the democratic West. So here in the United States, we have the sort of existing body of regulation on financial services, on automotive safety. Sometimes AI gets wrapped up in this, but there's nothing like the EU AI Act, which is very cross-cutting to AI as a technology as a whole. And they've been negotiating this thing for literally years. And finally, on 26, they passed it. So this is now going to be the final text. Really, all that's left is for them to translate it into all the languages of the European Union, which it turns out is actually quite hard uh, when it comes to the sort of jargon around AI, which doesn't exist in some of these languages. But once they do that, which will probably be in like March or April, everybody expects uh, this to pass. I just got back from a trip to Brussels and Rome meeting with a lot of the folks who were uh, working on the EU AI Act, they're all really excited. They feel like they've really done it. They sort of passed this landmark legislation. Unfortunately, while the work for the parliamentarians is over, the work for the European Commission and for the various member governments that have to actually implement this law, a lot of their work is just beginning. This is still going to take years. Okay, so what does this act do? So it is structured in multiple ways. The first is it defines different types of AI applications according to a pyramid of risk. So there's some types of applications like real-time, long-distance biometric surveillance by law enforcement authorities. This is deemed a, quote, unacceptable risk. So it's effectively just banned because they believe that this technology is, in most cases, just a human rights violation. And so they're not going to allow it. Then there's this other category of AI applications that are defined as high risk, which are not banned, but there are sort of preconditions for when it is acceptable to use this technology or not use this technology. And that's sort of under a product safety legal tradition of regulation. And then there's another category of some risk where there's some transparency requirements, but no formal ban or anything like that. 
And then finally, uh, and what a lot of the haggling was over in the final stages of negotiating this was around foundation models. So these are the types of AI systems that are not application specific, like a lot of the AI that was envisioned and in vogue when the EU AI Act was originally being debated several years ago, but more like ChatGPT, which is relevant to so many different domains of the economy. And now the EU AI Act has a regulatory structure for these systems. And unlike Unlike the United States AI executive order that President Biden signed last year, this is not applying to the next generation of large language models. It applies to the ones we have right now. They defined the computational threshold that way. So ChatGPT, these other things, they're going to be a regulated product under the EU AI Act when it actually goes into effect. So does that mean that to address future issues with AI, they're going to need to write new legislation? Well, the way they designed this legislation is actually kind of interesting. I could go way into the weeds on how the EU legal system works, but a lot of the material functionality of this law are written into the appendix. And that's sort of the equivalent in the United States legal system of administrative law, where like the Environmental Protection Agency can write regulations that have the force of law, and Congress sort of delegated the authority of specifying where those regulations actually are. They did the same thing with the EU AI Act, where a lot of the the critical functions of the legislation are in the appendix, which means that the European Commission, the sort of executive branch of the European government, has a lot of flexibility to amend and define those laws on the fly. The other thing that's really interesting about this is There's not a lot of standards for AI technology that define a testable requirement around safety. And the reason why that's important is that a lot of the EU AI Act is actually structured as an IOU for regulation. It basically, the the law says, thou shalt follow the standard, standards coming soon. And so these bodies like CENCENILAC, which is the EU standards organization, or the ISO, which is the International Standards Organization, suddenly the work that's going on there takes on this whole new level of seriousness because it's not just some, you know, boring in the weed technical standard that the standards nerd community cares about. This is out now actually in many cases going to result directly in the force of law and regulation. So I would expect a lot of AI companies to be paying a lot more attention to the ISO this year. Absolutely. Now, one of the questions I have is the language in the act has now been passed. You fully expect it to go into effect. Does this new set of regulations, does it hamstring innovation? Well, that was actually the big sort of fight at the end of the EU AI Act negotiation. Really, you had the sort of civil rights, human rights community, which is where this legislation actually has its origins several years ago. They encountered at the last moment some pretty stiff opposition from the industrial policy community. And Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, really emerged as sort of the champion of, hey, we should not regulate ourselves into technological irrelevance. We need to be looking at what's going on in the United States, what's going on in China, and we need our own AI champions. And so a lot of the sort of last minute changes to the legislation were really to satisfy uh, this faction of the French, the Germans, and the Italians, who had really sought some modifications to the legislation that would make it a little bit more friendly to the emerging AI industry of Europe. So, Greg, let's also talk about 
the AI office that was created. Is that going to be sort of the the monitoring body? It's going to set regulations. What what is it going to actually do? And how does the AI innovation package that they came up with? How does it fit into the EU's vision for AI? All of the above, basically, to answer your question. So this AI office really reflects sort of an emerging new paradigm for EU digital regulation. You know, historically, a lot of this would have been delegated to the member states. That's the case in GDPR. And that experience has sort of left a a bad taste in the mouth of many European regulators and many companies who really see this, even though the goal was to have an EU-wide legislation, you actually got, in the case of GDPR, a pretty fragmented regulatory implementation landscape where you know the country of Hungary and the country of Italy might have different approaches to implementing GDPR, and that can be confusing for companies and, and form barriers to trade, et cetera. So in the case of the AI office, the European Commission is actually going to hire 100 people. It's actually a pretty sizable office. And their goal is to, one, in the case of foundation models, the sort of large, diverse, multimodal models that are important for systems like ChatGPT, they're going to be the explicit regulator for all of the European Union. So the member states are really just following orders when it comes to those types of things, because those were deemed to be of systemic risk. And the EU wanted to take advantage of its sort of collective bargaining power rather than rely on each of the member states. But for high risk models, that is actually going to be handled at the member state enforcement level. And so all the AI office is doing in that case is setting certain guidelines and adjudicating disputes if, you know, two different countries sort of disagree with each other. Overall, you know, this this AI office is is following the paradigm of the Digital Services Act, which I think the European Commission feels like is going pretty well as compared with something like GDPR. Greg, what can the rest of the world learn from the EU's latest actions here? There's a lot that's sort of too early to say. I do think that the fact that these foundation model regulations are going to go into effect in the current generation of systems, whereas, and this gets to sort of an esoteric thing, but the regulation is based on the amount of computation required to generate the system. So they're counting floating point operations, flops in the computing nomenclature. And 10 to the 25th flops, that's a 10 with 25 zeros after it, is how many computations go into creating the current generation of models. The Biden administration executive order, the regulations kick in at 10 to the 26th flops. So what that means is the European Union is going to have really the first round of experience of what it really means to regulate these foundation models in a generalized kind of a way. And the next generation, the upgraded version, is where the U.S. regulations. So I'm sure all the folks in the, in the Commerce Department who are you know required to implement that requirement are going to be really watching closely what the experience of the companies is with the European system. Okay. Before we leave this topic, I want to ask you a final question on it. There's a buzzword or buzz phrase that's going around, trustworthy artificial intelligence. And a lot of this is designed and geared for creating trustworthy artificial intelligence. What does that actually mean? So I think trustworthy is obviously has to be calibrated, right? Am I going to trust you to water my plants? Am I going to trust you to watch my kids? Am I going to trust you to pilot an aircraft, you know, operating at 500 miles per hour, 20,000 feet up? So that 
aspect of trustworthy really relates to can I rely on you to perform as intended under realistic operational conditions? And can I do that? But that's the Greg Allen definition of trustworthy artificial intelligence. The definition as codified in the EU AI Act has yet to be written. And this gets back to my point about how there are standards where companies are now going to be legally on the hook to be something like trustworthy or accurate or robust. And now standards making bodies have to come up with what is the actual testable requirement that would hold up in a court of law that you are trustworthy or that you are accurate. And that's not an easy task, especially when you're thinking about all the different parts of the economy where AI could play a role. Let's move on. There was a really interesting story uh, reported out by the Financial Times today that talks about China being on the cusp of the next generation of developing chips, despite all the actions the U.S. has taken to try to slow them down. What about this? So you and I have talked about this at various stages, and, and we at CSIS have published a ton of reports analyzing this issue. This is actually not unexpected. Really, when we saw the Huawei phone, the 5G phone that they announced during Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo's trip to China, the clear implication was that despite all of the export controls, SMIC, which is the most advanced logic chip manufacturer in China, was not stopped from manufacturing and indeed continuing to make technological progress in seven nanometer chips, even though they don't have access to EUV lithography machines, which are sort of the super advanced Dutch systems. They only have the older DUV technology. And they're now going to have a clear path to five nanometer chips. But I say clear path, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good path. In the case of seven nanometer chips, this is sort of circa state of the art in late 2018. This is what was going into the 2018 and early 2019 iPhones. So it's an older technology and five nanometers is above that. But what's really interesting is that because of export controls, there are no EUV lithography machines in China. And in the rest of the global economy, what is done in Taiwan, what's done in Korea, seven nanometer chips were originally made without EUV machines, but then they're much more economically competitive to make with EUV machines. At industrial scale and economically viable production, nobody has ever made five nanometer chips without EUV machines. So China is embarking upon this strategy because they feel like they've been boxed into a corner by export controls. What might actually be the outcome here is that they're able to make five nanometer chips. And as the reporting in the Financial Times indicates, they expect to be able to do so in the not too distant future. The question is, at what kind of unit economics? And I would expect the answer is dreadful unit economics, really unprofitable. Most of the chips don't work, takes a lot longer to make each chip than you would hope for. But none of that really matters because the Chinese government's willingness to subsidize is clearly bottomless when it comes to these chips. And five nanometer chips and seven nanometer chips are all really useful for making AI. And that does indeed appear to be the case for where Huawei and SMIC are allocating a lot of this advanced node production. And so Huawei's got to be feeling pretty good about where they're headed here. Yes and no. Uh, on the one hand, they certainly you know wish that this had never happened if you go back in time to 2019 you know huawei had a phone that was 
competitive on every performance metric that matters with the state-of-the-art Apple iPhone. And they've now been wandering for the past five years, trying to claw their way back into the smartphone market, into other markets. But the reality is that you know while these export controls have imposed a, a ton of economic pain and slowed you know, technological progress a lot, they have not stopped it. And they have not stopped it in a way where Huawei and SMIC are now clearly committed to coming up with domestic alternatives to the NVIDIA AI chips that are so prevalent around the world. And they're really trying to create a, an independent, self-sufficient, self-reliant semiconductor ecosystem. And five nanometer chips is not nearly enough to do that, but it is the next milestone in what they're trying to achieve. On our side, the United States side, let's switch gears to China and the Biden administration's latest efforts to choke off access mm -hmm. to AI chips. At the end of January, Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo announced that the Biden administration is considering a proposal that would require U.S. cloud service providers to determine whether foreign entities are accessing their data centers to train AI models. So can you give us a brief overview of the department's proposal and the thinking behind it? And, and what would this mean if it was actually implemented for cloud service providers? So as you said, you know, this is a proposal, this is not indicated, but in general, these proposals really give a sense of where the government is probably headed. Right. So I would expect some version of this to become law, even if it's sort of not exactly as reflected in the current thinking. This really gets back to a problem that I've been talking about and writing about since the original October 7th export controls in 2022, the sort of export controls that set us off on this journey of trying to choke off China's access to the future of AI. Basically, this is a loophole that I identified at the time, which is to say we had made it illegal for China to buy the most advanced semiconductor chips to train AI models, but we had kept it as legal to rent those chips in the cloud. And while there's some arguments for why that ought to be the case, it's perhaps a little bit easier to know what's going on, you know, when you're monitoring someone's usage of American cloud assets versus monitoring, you know, someone's uses of chips that they bought and never talked to you about ever again. But this, this is trying to impose a know your customer standard that would require cloud computing companies to say, who is using their cloud capabilities and for what. And the obvious implication here is that it's going to get back to if you are a Chinese entity using this to train AI models via the cloud. Okay. So to what extent is this actually even feasible for the Commerce Department to enforce this proposal? Sure. I think there's sort of different levels of feasibility, and it kind of depends on how far they go in the regulations. You know, one version of the regulations that they could implement, and that doesn't mean they will, is applying the foreign direct product rule to U.S. made chips. So we basically say, if you're using U.S. chips, we get a say in how you're using them. And that could theoretically apply to, you know, foreign cloud providers, not just American owned companies like Microsoft and Google. Although, of course, the, you know, American cloud giants are, are generally the biggest in the world. So if they do that, you know, that would have hooks into companies all around the world. But companies, as we mentioned before, in the case of Huawei and SMIC, are trying to build this alternative chip ecosystem that might help them get around these, these regulations. Right. So that's sort of my next question. So, you know, is this going to be effective if the United States does it unilaterally? Or, you know, do we need other allies and partners to jump in here and do the same? 
That's what I would want to know. So if you if you use the foreign direct product rule, if you use the U.S. persons rule, those do have extraterritorial effects. So again, it sort of depends how they design and implement the regulation. But conceivably, you know, you could have a French cloud computing company. And if it's using NVIDIA GPUs or Google TPUs, then conceivably these export controls would apply to them. And they also wouldn't be allowed to sell cloud computing services into China. On the other hand, if they design these export controls without the use of the foreign direct product rule, then maybe it would only apply to you know, U.S. cloud giants, Microsoft, AWS, and Google. And so some new competitor in Singapore could suddenly gain market share in the cloud computing ecosystem by optimizing itself to, to serve China. So there are trade-offs when you design these types of regulations. Right. So, I mean, some of our cloud companies are saying they have concerns because the measure could adversely impact their impact in the global uh, marketplace. So are those concerns valid? Well, I definitely think that the design of the regulation matters and there is a way to get this wrong. But I think there's some cause for uh, optimism. For one thing, president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, who's also the vice chairman, he actually testified before Congress last year. Also a CSIS trustee, we should say. Indeed, he is. And he testified before Congress last year advocating for some version of these types of know your customer requirements. And uh, so I think there is some receptivity among the cloud giants for some version of this proposal. Of course, the devil is in the details. And I'm sure that's that's exactly why they did this as a request for comment rather than just sort of dropping and saying this is the final regulation. Greg, so, you know, along these lines, do do these regulations indicate to you that there's a real urgency in the Biden administration to stay ahead in the technology competition with China? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if the, the number one thing I would take away is, and this is a little bit tooting my own horn, but you know, for y- the year after the October 7th export controls, I was trying to explain to people that the Biden administration really did care about AI, that this regulation really was about AI. And I was encountering all these folks who said, you know, this is about crippling China's semiconductor industry. It has nothing to do with about AI. And that's just uh, you know, a, a distraction. But if you look at this cloud con- computing control, it really does indicate. And if you look at the Treasury Department's outbound investment rule, they really are going after AI in so many different areas. The the policy, you know, love it or hate it, it is a consistently expressed preference of the Biden administration that they are really concerned about the rise of AI in China. They do view these years as a critical moment for competitive advantage, and they're working to secure it. Well, let's talk about something that's a little bit more cooperative between the U.S. and China versus the adversarial, which we've been discussing this whole time. The White House recently stated that the Biden administration will be taking steps to work with China on AI safety in the coming months. Where do you see common ground emerging between the U.S. and China on AI safety? Yeah, and this has actually been a big focus of the AI safety movement for basically a decade. And it gets to the idea that some types of risks of artificial intelligence are shared even between enemies. If you think about the Cold War, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union didn't always have aligned interests. But there was this one really interesting moment uh, around a technology called permissive action links. 
And this is a suite of technologies that are designed to prevent nuclear weapons from being stolen by an unauthorized user or accidentally detonating. And what's so fascinating in that story is that we gave that technology for free to the Soviets, no questions asked. And we basically said, we don't want to accidentally nuke you. We don't want you to accidentally nuke us. This is clearly in everybody's interests. Here is a suite of technologies that we found useful. Definitely in everybody's interest. Yes, I would agree. Well, the AI safety movement has sort of taken inspiration from that story of permissive action links. And if you recall the open letter from last year that was saying the risk of human extinction from advanced artificial intelligence should be viewed as a global priority in the same way that nuclear weapons and bioweapons are, that's sort of the argument here. There are aspects of future progress in AI where there are plausible even if unlikely, scenarios for catastrophic AI risk. And so the point here is, even if we disagree with China on almost everything, even if we are actively trying to choke off their access to future AI technology, it might still be in our interest to have a conversation around AI safety. Do you think we can have productive conversations with them on this? Well, my experience, and it is a personal experience, has not been great on this topic. So when I was in the Department of Defense uh, working on AI policy issues, as part of the defense policy coordination talks, which is one of the major dialogues between the Department of Defense and the Chinese military, you know, we tried to brief them on AI safety. We tried to highlight the investments that we were making that were committed to AI safety. And we were making the basic argument look that said, look, in general, we would prefer that your weapons not work, <laughs> whether they're AI weapons or not. But there's a certain category of things like accidental initiation of hostilities where I actually do want your technology to work. And so we were trying to have a conversation around AI safety in the military domain. And the Chinese refusal to talk was very consistent, at times verging on rude, I would say. And so there really hasn't been a lot of uh, receptivity. One perhaps you know, source of, of optimism that is more recent than my experience in the DOD is that China did attend the AI Safety Summit in the UK last year. And they have sort of indicated that they're interested in AI safety collaboration. So whether or not that's just sort of bluster or there's actually an opportunity for something substantive there, I don't really know. But I think the Biden administration has sort of made it clear that, you know, while they're interested in these AI safety dialogues, the cloud computing move should make it clear that that's not instead of, you know, the policy of trying to restrict China's progress in AI. That's in addition to. Greg, as always, terrific insight into these really complex and fascinating discussions that we're going to be continuing to have on this podcast. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the AI Policy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to visit our website, csis.org, for show notes and our research reports. See you next time.